Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Life has always been uncertain. Now, none of us know how many heartbeats we have left. There's a drumbeat of uncertainty here that all of us have been living with all the time. And there is a way to make our peace with that, right? There's no alternative. Immortality is not on the menu. That's Sam Harris. He's a philosopher, a neuroscientist, and the author of best-selling books about religion, meditation, and rationality. He is also the host of the Making Sense podcast. In 2014, Harris published Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion, and four years later launched a popular corresponding app which offers daily guided meditations. Harris burst onto the cultural scene in 2004 with the publication of his provocative book, The End of Faith. He soon became part of the New Atheism Movement, a loose group of skeptics that included Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, and the late Christopher Hitchens. Since then, Harris has become a passionate advocate for religious reform, meditation, and freedom of speech. Today, Harris and I talk about the principles of meditation and the role it can play in our response to crises like the coronavirus pandemic. We also discuss the moral complexities of reopening society, the psychology of Trump supporters, and the controversies he's been embroiled in, like when he hosted Charles Murray, author of The Bell Curve, on his podcast. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey folks, Stay Tuned with Preet has been nominated for a Webby People's Voice Award for the best news and politics podcast, and we need your help to bring home the prize. You can cast your ballot at vote.webbyawards.com. That's vote.webbyawards.com. Once there, just type Preet or Stay Tuned in the search bar. The link to the page can also be found in the show notes to the episode and in cafe emails. The deadline to vote is upon us. It's tonight, Thursday, May 7th at midnight. So put your remote voting skills to practice and vote for Stay Tuned with Preet for best podcast series in the news and politics category. Again, that's vote.webbyawards.com. Thank you, as always, for helping support our work and inspiring us to do what we do. And now, on to the show. This question comes from Twitter user Kenneth A. Vatz, at KenV54, who asks... Why don't Dem senators refuse to return to D.C. for the McConnell judge approval fiasco? They can't block the nominations, and pending legislation from the House is bipartisan or will be voted down. And in committee, doesn't lack of any Dems stop the hearings, hashtag AskPreet. Well, that's a good series of questions. Obviously, one of the things that some people are not happy about is that in the midst of this pandemic, and there don't seem to even be enough tests to administer to all the senators in that chamber— The Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has summoned everyone back into session, and in his words, for the purpose of confirming judges that a lot of Democrats are not so fond of, including a protege of Mitch McConnell, who is at the ripe old age of 37 and is being promoted to be a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. So as a general matter, 
I suppose Dem senators could refuse to return to D.C. I think that a lot of them understand that it's their duty to be in the chamber and vote on Senate business. As you know, I worked in the Senate for four and a half years, and it's not the style of most senators to simply stay away. They come and they fight and they make their arguments and they make speeches on the floor and they talk about things in committee. And as you point out, it wouldn't necessarily stop the juggernaut anyway. So it seems not so pragmatic and wise and not even so principled necessarily to stay away from the chamber altogether, although you could make the argument that it's it's a trying time and it's an unsafe time and some of these members are in a high-risk category and maybe they shouldn't be going back. So I think we should leave that to the discretion and judgment of individual senators, notwithstanding what they're called back for. You ask an interesting question about what happens in the committee. As you know, judicial nominations all have to pass through the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is now chaired by Chairman Lindsey Graham. The ranking member is Diane Feinstein. So in light of your question, I took it upon myself to refresh my own recollection about the rules relating to a quorum. So just to step back for a second, every federal judge, district court, or circuit court must have a hearing in the Judiciary Committee. That's step one. Step two is then there's a committee vote with respect to that judge. And if it's a favorable vote, then there's a floor vote. So there's basically three times where some proceeding has to happen in the Senate. With respect to hearings, there is no quorum requirement and all the Democrats can stay home and suck on their thumbs and that will not prevent a hearing from going forward. There is a requirement for a quorum to conduct certain business, transact business. And here's what the rule says. It's Senate Judiciary Committee Rule 3, Section 1. Seven members of the committee actually present shall constitute a quorum for the purpose of discussing business. Nine members of the committee, including at least two members of the minority, shall constitute a quorum for the purpose of transacting business. And then, this is important, no bill, matter, or nomination shall be ordered reported from the committee, however, unless a majority of the committee is actually present at the time such action is taken and a majority of those present support the action taken. So what does that mean? That means as a technical matter, you got to have two Democrats who are in the minority at the moment present on the committee for there to be the ability to transact business. And that business does include voting on nominations, as I recall and as I understand it. Now, there have been times, including in my experience, that Democrats have just completely boycotted a Judiciary Committee vote, either on a nominee or otherwise. That happens pretty infrequently. And as I said before, I think a lot of members feel that that's a disservice to their constituents. Maybe you can do it one week. Maybe you can do it two weeks, but to just stay away from the committee altogether for every vote, I think might prompt a rule change. It might prompt some extraordinary action. Remember, these committee rules are not quite the same thing as constitutional principles, and they are not scripture. And Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham can come up with a way in the face of what they would say is democratic obstruction, more so than you typically see, and figure out a way to bring these nominees to the floor anyway. In my experience also, Dianne Feinstein is one of those people who doesn't like to take refuge in a boycott from a vote. There were times that I can remember that some of the Democrats said, well, we don't like this particular bill or we don't like this particular nominee and we're going to deny a quorum. And Dianne Feinstein almost always, in my recollection, said that's not what I got elected to do. I got elected to show up and I'll make my best arguments. And if my side wins, it wins. If it loses, it loses. But I'm not going to hide in my office as opposed to vote. So according to the technical rules, Democrats have some ability to delay votes on particular judges, perhaps, but I think it's a limited ability that they have. This question comes in a tweet from Marianne Parkhill. Hi, hashtag AskPreet. How was the White House able to prevent Fauci from testifying? Can't the Congress subpoena anyone? Doesn't Fauci have to respond to the subpoena? Well, 
This is an age-old question that is being litigated right now in multiple courts, as Ann Milgram and I talked about on the Cafe Insider podcast, with respect to Don McGahn, the former White House counsel. Now, as an initial matter with respect to Dr. Fauci, my understanding is that the White House says he's not permitted to come testify in the House. I don't believe a subpoena has been issued. If a subpoena is issued, there are various limitations on the House's ability to enforce the subpoena, especially given the state of play with these other cases. But as a threshold matter, I don't believe that Dr. Fauci has yet been subpoenaed. And when you're not subpoenaed, I guess you can choose not to show up, although that's kind of disrespectful to the House committee. On the other hand, it does appear that Dr. Fauci has been asked to testify, and the White House has agreed to let him testify before a Senate committee. That seems a little selective. It's an interesting question how a court would address the issue of not whether or not the White House has the right to say, we're not going to let someone who works in the administration come testify, and the legislature and the executive branch have to work that out because we're not going to get involved. It's a slightly more complicated matter when the White House says, well, you can testify in one chamber of commerce, but you can't testify in another chamber of commerce. That doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. And I don't know if it would be easy enough for even those judges who say they want to stay out of it to stay out of that controversy, because that seems highly suspect. There's also the question of whether or not Dr. Fauci is, in fact, the kind of person that Don McGahn is, a high-ranking official who would be subject to executive privilege claims because Dr. Fauci is not a member of the White House staff. It's unclear how those differences would play out if there was a court battle. By the way, the mere idea of having a court battle over having Dr. Fauci testify is subject to such significant delay. It's not clear what the state of the pandemic would be after months pass and that problem and issue is resolved. This question comes in an email from Pat Ruck, who asks, whatever happened to the publication of John Bolton's book? Thanks. Well, that's a great question. And my first response is, who cares? (laughs) In fact, I think I tweeted in the last couple of days in response to a report that his publication date has been moved. I think the first time I have used on Twitter, the yawn emoji. I didn't even know there was a yawn emoji. And I think it was made precisely for this circumstance. You know, a more serious answer to your question is, as a technical matter, there still appears to be some government vetting going on and review with respect to national security information and sensitive information, which may be legitimate. It may be political to push John Bolton's book back. The original publication date was St. Patrick's Day, March 17th. That was moved recently to May 12th. And the reason I suppose you're asking this question now is it has been moved again to June 23rd. It could be a combination of review and also publishers these days are moving a lot of books back, including you know books not as controversial as John Bolton's would be because there's not an ability to market the books. It's not a great time for a book to come out. And maybe people aren't buying books as much as they were before, given that they're on hard economic times. So I don't know if it'll come out on June 23rd, or if the book, which is entitled The Room Where It Happened, A White House Memoir, will come out at some later time. I think interest in the book is less than what it was before. John Bolton had his opportunity to testify in connection with the impeachment proceeding. He refused to do so. The impeachment vote took place. And so what he has to say, I don't know how relevant it is to the world, particularly while we're in the midst of this pandemic. The one thing that I wonder whether he'll address or not, that is related to this pandemic world that we're in, and that I think puts Bolton under the spotlight, and not in a good way at all, are all those reports that say that John Bolton, national security advisor, is the person who was responsible for disbanding what has been commonly known as the pandemic response team in the White House, formerly known as the Global Health Security and Biodefense Unit. So maybe his book will be a yawner. Maybe he'll be defensive about this particular thing that relates to how unprepared the administration was. And I don't know how much people are going to want to listen to what he has to say about any issues, including that issue. 
given how he didn't live up to his responsibility to testify back in January. It's time for a short break. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. My guest this week is Sam Harris. He's the host of the Making Sense podcast and the author of Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. An influential atheist, Harris has written impactful books on religion and politics, which have provoked controversy and also earned him a dedicated following. Harris joins me to break down the principles of meditation, the moral arithmetic of opening up our society, and his frustrations with political correctness. Sam Harris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here, Preet. It's great to have you. Let me begin by asking you what I ask every guest during this age of pandemic. How are you making out? How's your family? How are you coping? Uh, we are surprisingly good, and it's we really have just pure luck to thank for that. I mean, I just you know I'm a, I feel especially lucky that I can work without any real change in in what I'm doing or how I'm doing it. I mean, I just, just by, without any foresight, I managed to create a, a platform for myself where, you know, my team is, has been a hundred percent distributed. Everyone can work from home. I can podcast and write and record uh, content for my meditation app. I mean, it just, everything is, is just seemingly designed for this moment. So it just, right. again, I attribute no foresight to that. It's just, it really is dumb luck, but it's, I feel amazingly grateful. Do you miss people? Uh, yeah, but I, you know, I have my, my family with me, so I'm not, you know, alone by any stretch. And it's a, uh, as many people in this circumstance have found there, there is a silver lining to this, which is, you know, the, the, the quality of, Family life, in many ways, has has been improved. Again, you know, assuming you have a a great marriage and you know things are are, are working out, and and so I mean, I'm painfully aware that that many people are in diametrically opposite circumstances to the one I'm in. You know, even with respect to variables like their marriage. I mean, to be in a in an unhappy marriage in this circumstance would be would be terrible. But yeah, so it's it's been really it's been it's been great apart from being concerned about where all this is headed, you know, at the scale of society and, you know, knowing that at a certain point we're all going to know people who are you know, really 
terribly impacted by this, if not, you know, just actually killed by this virus. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of my 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 worries are directed really not so much to my own case here because we're remarkably insulated. So we have a, as will always be the case with someone like you, Sam Harris, 45,000 things to talk about. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on was to talk about various aspects of how people are dealing with the pandemic. I have some you know, some policy thoughts and questions I want to ask you about later. But but first, one of your endeavors, as you mentioned a second ago, was a dedication to and a teaching of meditation. You have an app called Waking Up. You have a book by the same name, Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. Before we get to some of those concepts and how that activity might help certain people, maybe many people, I want to sort of get a sense of how you got to where you got. So let me take you back to college. You were at a you know pretty decent school known as Stanford, and I believe you were an English major there. Uh, yeah, first time around I was. Yeah, and so and by first time around that you're getting me to the segue. So you leave the confines of Stanford to go on. I think what you have described as a ten year journey. What was that about, and why did you feel the need to leave college and go on a ten year journey? Well, when I when I dropped out. And uh, at Stanford, it's it's called stopping out, and I, I think Stanford may be the only school, or you know, only decent school that has this policy where you can never really drop out. You, know, you can you can just walk away and come back in you know a quarter of a century apparently, and the registrar never blinks. You're still enrolled. You you didn't have to send them letters accounting for your absence all the while, and that actually proved to be. In my case, an amazing advantage. I mean, I guess it could have been, to some degree, you know, one of the proximate causes for me dropping out in the first place because I knew I could always come back. But I don't remember that being part of my thinking. But so when it when it came time, when I had the epiphany that I should go back to school and go to graduate school, it made it very easy to come back, and and that was I was very happy for that. It took me, as you. As you know, um, it was actually 11 years between my what uh, was my sophomore and should have been my junior year. I initially dropped out for two reasons. One, I, I was writing a novel at the time. I wanted to be a, a fiction writer. And it just was clear to me that at that point, if you're going to write the great American novel, nobody cares you know, where you went to school, much less whether you finished school. You know, So that, that was really my, my aspiration at that point. So I, I didn't see any great peril in not finishing. And also I got I got really interested in the practice of meditation and all related esoterica, you know, you, you know f- philosophy generally, but Eastern philosophy at that point in particular, and started spending a fair amount of time on meditation retreats. Uh, this entire career path was initially kindled by a couple of uh, psychedelic experiences, which proved to me that there was more to the mind than than I had given the mind credit for and I started sitting you know some you know longish meditation retreats in silence you know starting with a weekend and then 10 days and then ultimately uh, a month and and two months and and three months and when you say two months or three months two months or three months of doing what exactly in my case these are very structured uh, retreats in a tradition called uh, Vipassana, which is uh, usually translated as insight meditation. And this is the, the tradition that's given us the, the big boom in, in mindfulness. And this is where you know mindfulness comes out of this system of teaching in the Buddhist tradition. And these retreats, starting in about 
you know, 1975 or so, 1974, uh, there were a bunch of Westerners, uh, you know, my friend Joseph Goldstein among them, who brought this practice, you know, out of India and to the West and set up retreat centers and a general curriculum for teaching a, a silent retreat where you would have about 100 people on retreat, but navigating even common spaces totally in silence and, you know, not even making eye contact. So you can you can have breakfast and lunch with a hundred people and no one, no one has to ask, you know, to pass the salt. I mean, they really have a, they've created a kind of a machine for continuous meditation in silence, even for months at a time. And in this practice, you are doing sitting and walking meditation, you know, an hour of each alternating by turns. And you do that throughout the day. So, you know, in the, in the middle of a, a long retreat, you know, you could be meditating 14, 16 hours a day formally. And then you're trying to, every interstitial moment, you're also trying to, to be as clearly mindful as possible. So you're, you're trying to just, you know, what's really unique about a silent retreat is that you've told yourself at the outset that, you know, for this period of time, whether it's a weekend or whether it's a month, there's nothing worth thinking about. You're not going to do anything with any thought that's going to occur to, occur to you. You're not going to go work in any way. You're not going to send an email. You're not going to read any books, much less write a book. You're done with any conceivable distraction, and the goal is simply to be as clearly aware of the, the contents of your own consciousness as possible and to thereby recognize some features of the mind that you know you're, people tend not to recognize when they're constantly identified with thought and moved by thought to pursue the next object of desire or get rid of the next object of aversion and so you just you know it's an amazing container for this project which if you only have practiced meditation for 20 minutes at a time you know once a day or even an hour at a time once a day it's a really unique crucible in which to to experience the consequences of continuous practice. And so, yeah, so I did that for, you know, in my 20s, I spent about two years on silent retreat. And so what is what is the point of that activity for most people? Is it an end in and of itself to experience that kind of activity? Or is it a goal further down the road that you're aiming for? Well, it, it's a, the answer to that is slightly paradoxical because the goal is to recognize something about the nature of consciousness that's already true, right? So the goal is to, on some level, arrive at where you already are, but you're you're constantly overlooking this feature of the mind, and and thereby, you know, it, it seems like you have to seek it out, you ha- and you have to practice, you know, some arduous method to get there, and, it, and so it, it is paradoxical. But the you know there, there's a, there's a resolution to that paradox. But the, the thing there are several things that. You, you want to recognize if you're spending any significant time meditating. And the primary one is that the substance of certainly most of your suffering, you know, virtually all of your psychological suffering is a matter of being identified with thought. It's a matter of, of thinking without knowing that you're thinking. You know, if, when, you, when you look at the character of your mind moment to moment, and people who haven't meditated, for them, this, this may be you know, something that they've yet to really discover uh, directly. They may, in an abstract way, understand this. But it is a bit of an epiphany in the beginning when you try to meditate that your, your mind is completely out of control. You're, you're thinking 
moment to moment, from the, the instant you wake up in the morning to the instant you fall asleep at night, you're having a conversation with yourself. You're, you're, there's, there's a voice in your head. You're buffeted around by images and, and memories. And it, when you try to pay attention to the present moment, it is viewed through this this scrim of discursivity and and conceptual judgments, and it's just a blizzard of conceptual thought. Which and, you're trying to get away from during the process of meditation, but is, is part of the point of that, and I'm a novice with respect to all these issues, so bear with me, is part of the point of that when you stop meditating, that there's a different quality to the way you think about things, or is meditation just a respite from those things, and you go back to the way your mind otherwise works? with all of its cacophony and swirling thinking that's out of control, as you described. In other words, is there supposed to be an effect for meditation on your non-meditative state? Oh, yeah. I mean, the goal is not to become a meditator and certainly not to become someone who spends most of his or her life on retreat. Uh, although, although people do, you know, I mean, it is such a difficult project when you get into it that you know many people do choose to spend vast periods of time on retreat. And I've studied with people who, you know, spent... 10 or more years in, in caves. I mean, some great Tibetan lamas. So, you know, th- there is a, outwardly, it can seem like a, a pretty strange project. But the reality is, is that you're not trying to get rid of thought. You're not trying, you're not even trying to get rid of negative thoughts in the end. You're trying to recognize something about the nature of consciousness such that your well-being, really the intrinsic well-being of, of consciousness isn't undermined moment by moment by identification with thought. There's there's an image in the Tibetan tradition of, uh, you know, in the end, thoughts are like thieves entering an empty house. Right? No, there's nothing there for them to steal, right? And that that is an experience you can have where in the beginning you, you know, you're just ceaselessly hijacked by thought, right? So you're, you're trying to meditate, you're trying to pay attention to the breath, say, which is an initial exercise. And you just notice that you, you can only do it for a few seconds before you're you're thinking about all the stuff you have to do today or you're worrying about that conversation you had with a colleague the day before that didn't feel quite right why are you always like that why why can't you just say the right and then you're ju- you're off and running and it is the kind of thing the the default state of consciousness for the normal person is impressively similar to psychosis right i mean the only difference really between a normal person and a psychotic is the psychotic doesn't have the good sense to keep his mouth shut, right? The psychotic is someone who's verbalizing all of these thoughts. But if you look at the nature of of the conversation you're having with yourself, you are talking to someone who isn't there, right? And I mean, you're, you're, you're presuming to be both the speaker and the receiver of the conversation. And it is quite delusional. And it's the character of the conversation is so often unhappy. I mean, sometimes it's happy. Sometimes you're telling yourself how great you are and what a good thing you just did and how much you're looking forward to the weekend and all of that. But even that, it has a, you know, that has a kind of delusional structure to it. But the, the crucial point is that at a certain point in meditation practice, you can penetrate this illusion and recognize that there's nobody there, right? There's no subject in the middle of consciousness. There's no thinker who's authoring the thoughts. There's no little man in the boat. So if you are a meditator, during the periods of time that you're not meditating, how are you supposed to be dealing with the voices in your head? Are you supposed to be becoming less psychotic or just aware of the fact that you are a psychotic, but for the fact that you keep your mouth shut? Well, no. So here I should say there there are different kinds of meditation and some, by definition, are are somewhat divorced from normal 
life, uh, but mindfulness isn't one of those types. And so it's really, in the end, meditation isn't even a even something you're doing. It's it's something you're you're ceasing to do. I mean, you're ceasing to identify with every thought that comes careening into consciousness, and you're simply becoming aware in an open and non-judgmental and non-reactive way more and more of whatever's arising on its own, thoughts, emotions, sensations, sights, sounds, perceptions. There's no facet of experience that isn't a fit object of, of mindfulness. So once you, know, once you have some stability in the practice, the, the goal thereafter is, is to not find any distinction between formal meditation and the rest of life. To sh- sharpen this up, you know, in this conversation with you, I'm experiencing, you know, it, it, not continuously, but, you know, intermittently, what I would call the target state of meditation practice. It's not separate from functioning normally in the world. And it, it's, it's certainly not a matter of suppressing thought, right? We need to be able to think. You know, meditation is not, the goal is not to become incapable of discursive thought. And there's nothing about the state of mindfulness that blocks a person's ability to, you know, understand human speech or initiate it. I mean, all, you know, so you can have a conversation and you can listen to the statements of others and parse them. Your mind is is entirely intact. The thing that goes away is this sense that there is a a subject in the head who's carried through from one moment to the next. I mean, the, the starting point for most people is that they feel that they have a self and that the self is not identical to their bodies, right? They, have a, they feel like they have a self that's internal to the body and, and very likely internal to the head. And it's the thinker of their thoughts. It's, it's the one who's trying to meditate. It's the one who, who is behind their face and for whom the, their face is almost like a mask, right? Like you can, you know, we just imagine what it's like to you know, feel self-conscious and you know, embarrassed and you're in dialogue with somebody else and, you know, your, your, your blushing face is something, you know, in front of you that's, you know, exposing your inner anguish. And the feeling for most people is that they are this homunculus of some kind in the head, right? And that's the central illusion that meditation is designed to cut through. That there, there, really, is, there really is just a unity of experience, right? There's just consciousness and its contents in each moment. And uh, the sense that there's a subject is is an illusion that you can cut through. And cutting through it, it's an immense relief psychologically, right? It allows you to put down the burden of this, you know, painful self-talk really in a moment. I mean, so you can, you know, if you suddenly have a thought that makes you angry, at this point in your practice, you can actually decide how long you want to be angry for. You can just say, okay, I mean, I'm not saying anger is never warranted, but, you know, its its utility has a very short half-life, right? Like, it, I mean, for me, a negative emotion like anger is is information, right? It's, it's, it's a signal of, that increases the salience of certain things in the world. But it's almost never the case that the best response to this information is to remain enraged and stay that way for minutes or hours or days at a time. And once you actually know how to meditate, once you can just simply recognize anger as this arising appearance in consciousness and recognize its physiology and become interested in it and just be the non-reactive context in which it appears, the half-life of an emotion like anger is on the order of seconds. You know, it's not even minutes. And 
it is a kind of superpower to be able to just drop your problem in any moment when when that, that's warranted. And, and you know, 99% of the time it is warranted. And is the same true not just for emotions like anger, but also sadness or isolation or anything else like that? It is, yeah. I mean, that, this is, you know, one of the things you you learn and you learn it most vividly in the context of a meditation retreat. So against the backdrop of these explanations, you use in your app and in your book, a sleep metaphor, waking up. What is it that, that people are waking up from? Uh, well, this dream of, of discursivity and identification with thought in the end, I mean, it's, and, and waking up to the nature of the mind seen clearly without it was where, where thoughts are seen as appearances in consciousness and where the impermanence of of all experience is is vivid so you can see that there on some level there's nothing to hold on to right I mean, everything experience is continually changing you know sights and sounds and sensations and thoughts and moods and emotions everything is just there's this ca- cascade of appearance in consciousness and when you recognize it for what it is i mean many things happen i mean what you take one feature that you know buddhists tend to emphasize but this is you know by no means it doesn't capture the whole project but when you look at the the imperative that most of us feel to gratify desire right we think of something we want you know whether it's you know just a a sensory pleasure or you know it's food or or it's just, it's a goal, you know, it could be a career goal. You know, we, we, we think of something that, some change in experience that we, we want, and we may desperately want this thing. We may, spend the, we may spend months and years trying to get this thing and defer our sense of well-being until we get this thing. Well, almost anything, by, by virtue of, of impermanence, almost anything you can want is a kind of mirage. Now, th- this is not to say that there's no difference between having you know, a good life and a bad one, uh, or, you know, you know, getting most of what you, you would want and, get, and getting none of it. Of course, the, there's, there's a difference there. But when you look at the connection between getting what you want and the deepest forms of well-being, there's an amazing distance between those two things. Because the arrival at any goal or the, you know, the getting the, getting the taste you want on your tongue these are incredibly brief. The, the fulfillment of these desires are, are incredibly brief experiences, and then you're left with the memory of them. You know, then you're left thinking, you know, how good that was or how satisfying that was, and then you're left thinking about the next thing you want. And this treadmill just never stops, right? And you, and and most people never discover an alternative, but you know, running on it as fast as they can. Is that necessarily a bad thing for society? Right, because because ambition and you know the crazy psychotic need for accomplishment or achievement, even though each individual example and receipt of of achievement or production of an achievement is fleeting, as you say, that's how you build progress, technological and otherwise. Some of which is bad, some of which is not bad. So I guess my question is, you know, a lot of this discussion has been about what meditation and mindfulness does for individuals. What would happen in a society in which? everyone in the society had learned how to be mindful and meditated in this way at a very advanced level. Would it change the nature of, of that society, its culture, its politics, the interactions that take place? Yeah, well, I, I think that is a, it's an understandable concern, but I think it's a false one. Because when you, when you look at what it takes to have your life radically transformed by this, this kind of inquiry, 
it is rare to take this as far as it can be taken, right? And and you know, I don't I don't, I don't hold myself up as an example of you know the ultimate meditative athlete. I, I'm I'm certainly not. I mean, I'm I'm someone who I'm very clearly aware of speaking from my own experience and and when I'm not speaking from my own experience to 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 flag that you know clearly but I mean so that there are people who yes who who've devoted more or less every instant of their life at a certain point to meditation practice and you know I've studied with with some of those people and yes if everyone followed their example civilization as we know it would grind to a halt I mean we there would be nobody making the, the vaccine for covid-19 or anything else we're we're eagerly waiting for and, and are right to care about, but this is true with almost any other very narrow specialization. I mean, you you could ask the same question: you know, what if everyone became an NBA basketball player? Right? It was all about you know Michael Jordan all the time. Um, well, they'd all be out yeah, of work right now. Yeah, we, yeah, well, they'd all be out of work, <laughs> and we wouldn't get much of anything else done. Right? It takes all kinds to run a a functioning global civilization. But when you when you talk about sort of the basic insights and the basic competence here, it would do nothing but improve the mental health of more or less everyone. I mean, you know, there's I would say there's certain people who shouldn't do long silent retreats. I mean, you, you know, people suffering from schizophrenia being one. I mean, it's it's just it's I would say they shouldn't do psychedelics either. It is a kind of pressure cooker practice at a certain point, you know, for many hours a day. Uh, but for most people, most of the time, an ability to recognize that, you know, again, bring it back to anger. I mean, just think of the difference between being angry for as long as you will be angry based on the mere happenstance of your own, you know, the, you know, the legacy effects of your own mind, right? So, you know, if you're going to be angry for two weeks, based on something happening on Twitter or, you know, in, in the office or in your marriage, uh, that's going to be you for two weeks. And you and everyone else will be hostage to, you know, whatever you think to say and do on the wings of that emotion. But somebody who actually can practice mindfulness can recognize anger as separable from the thoughts that are arising, which suggests that you have every right to be angry. And, and you can recognize the thoughts themselves as these, you know, mere appearances, these transitory appearances in awareness. And you can decide to become interested in that process, which otherwise is just this automaticity that, that you know, you, you can't inspect. But now you can see it and you can see that it's something that is appearing in a larger space of consciousness, which is which is not itself angry. And doing that gives you a, a another degree of freedom. And then you're no longer suffering the illusion that someone else is making you angry, right? Like the, the, this is the this is the, the first you know childlike illusion that gets cut through that you know when when something when someone quote makes you angry, you feel that your discomfort in that moment and every moment thereafter is something that they're responsible for, right? I feel this bad because you did that stupid thing that I'm now angry about. And you know now I have to discharge my unhappiness at you and everyone else in the environment because you know I feel so bad and there's no alternative but to discharge it. And that's the way mo you know mo certainly most people live until they learn something like mindfulness. And yet the difference between being angry for two weeks or two hours and two minutes 
is extraordinary, right? I mean, just you know, if the, if the half life of anger is cut down by you know orders of magnitude in that way, all of the behavioral and emotional and you know and relationship and career antecedents of that anger just disappear. Is there a difference between unproductive anger and righteous anger, which can serve as a deterrent to the person who has put you in that state because they've behaved badly? Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think anger is, I don't think we would want to get rid of anger entirely. I mean, again, anger is a, is a salience signal, you know, as is fear and, and, and sadness. And I mean, you know, all of these emotions are appropriate in their, their own context, but, but the context spreads. And in proportion as well. Yeah. And the problem yeah, it seems to me with all these things you're talking about, speaking as a, as someone who is, is not a meditator, is there's, there's a problem of proportionality. Something happens, you get angry for two weeks when appropriately you should be angry for two minutes. Maybe there's some things that are rightly uh, angering for two hours, but often people don't make a distinction among those things because they haven't thought deeply enough about it and haven't disassociated themselves from those thoughts, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, that, for instance, a, a clear case for me, and this is, you know, you, you know, this is a hobby horse I often ride. I mean, it's like when I see the next abomination. Uh, coming out of the White House, you know, I often feel anger, but again, anger for it just it doesn't stay long. It just it just becomes a a salience signal, right? It's just it, it is a okay. This is worth paying attention to. This is there is something to respond to here because this is this is not normal. It's not normal, and it's it's certainly not normative. This is not a status quo we want to maintain, and so to see. Each Trumpian indiscretion, uh, and to see the distance between you know you know how the president is functioning and how a good president you know could and and would function you know to take in, in the context of this pandemic, it's totally appropriate to be outraged by that and to be motivated by that outrage. But then the question is, what's the optimal mood to be in for the rest of the day as you you know write your op-ed or record a podcast or or do something useful to get this guy out of office, well, then I would argue that anger is almost never the feeling you want. And it's, it's certainly not not the feeling you want to leak into the rest of your life where you know, you're now having lunch with your family and you're the angry guy. It's not that you want to be completely free of stress. And there's good stress that can be used to productive ends. And I would you know, here I would draw an analogy to you know, physical exercise. I mean, physical exercise, when you're really doing it, when you, you know, when you go to the gym and lift heavy weights, that's incredibly stressful. But it's, it is good stress, which you, you are imposing on yourself for a reason, and then you can put it down. But you know, if your blood pressure stayed you know, at the same level as it did you know, when you were doing your, your personal best in the bench press, you know, that would be highly dysfunctional. And on some level, our, we don't have in our career stress and in our, in our psychology, many of us have lo lost the ability or never acquired the ability to put down the stress that would otherwise be motivating to a useful purpose in, in a briefer context. So continuing with the exercise metaphor for a second, not everyone is going to become, as you put it, a meditative athlete because that takes a lot of effort and people are busy and people may not be motivated to do that. But is it your view, and I, I'm predicting that it is, that everyone could benefit from 10, 15, 20 minutes 
of a meditative exercise in the same way that pretty much everyone, no matter your body type, no matter your your level of health, can benefit from even 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes of exercise. Is, is, it, a, is it a universal recommendation on your part? Yeah. And it, it's actually a pretty good analogy because the transition from zero to one or, or you know, nothing to something is, you know, I would argue where the biggest gains are made, you know, so a little bit does go a long way. And, and this is, this is certainly true with something like lifting weights. I mean, if you're someone who is completely sedentary, who does nothing in the direction of, of fitness, if you switch from that to having one good workout in the gym a week, that's an enormous gain in terms of your health. I mean, it's just—I don't know if it's eighty percent of the the whole project, but it's 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 close. And you know, then you know, then you from from having made that jump, then you can decide how far you want to take this this fitness project. And then you know, when you walk into the gym, you'll see photographs of you know the the, the world's fittest people on the wall, and you and you'll you'll see advertised to you just how far this this path goes in the end, and and you'll know that. It really, on some level, you know, modulo certain you know genetic talents and and the difference between good and bad luck. There's nothing you, unique about your case where you couldn't make massive progress if you if you actually applied your attention to it. And it's the same thing with meditation. I mean, everyone, more or less, everyone finds it difficult in the beginning, which is to say that they they sit down and close their eyes and they try to meditate and and basically they they just wind up thinking with their eyes closed. Uh, but with the right, right guidance. That would be me. Yeah, but it really is everybody. I mean, except unless you happen to be, you know, the Tiger Woods of of concentration for some reason, that's the universal experience. So can you apply what you've been talking about with respect to meditation and mindfulness to the current pandemic? I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this with you is that there are a lot of reasons for people to be anxious, to be stressed, to be sad, to be angry. Uh, also on top of all of those things. Is there a particular way you think that in the current time people can use meditation? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is an especially good circumstance to to think about this, but the truth is it applies, you know, everywhere all the time. And on some level there's there's nothing unique about this. And I, you know, I should acknowledge as I as I did at the beginning that this is not one circumstance. I mean, the, people are having radically different experiences here. There are people who have witnessed the complete implosion of their their economic lives, and there are people who are making twice as much money as they ever had because they're, they're just in the right business. There are people who can work from home uh, without a hitch because they, they, they've always been working from home, and there are people who for whom working was synonymous with leaving the house, and they can they can do nothing. You know, they can't even make a gesture in the direction of of doing something useful until this lockdown ends. And then there's you know every other conceivable difference with respect to the actual disease. Right, there are people who who have caught it and are you know suffering the symptoms and are worried about everything getting worse. And and there are people who have lost loved ones. And um, I mean, I, I happen to know someone. I mean, not a close friend, but a, a close friend of a close friend who was, you know, practically patient zero, at least on the West Coast, and you know, spent 31 days on a ventilator, and and you know, is now happily survived, but has you know a, an immense amount of work to do to get back to something like health now. So, just the range of experiences here is as wide as as possible. But that that's true everywhere else in life. You know, all the time. 
And it is true to say in, in every one of those cases, you know, good and bad, what we have in each moment is our immediate sensory and emotional experience and the presently arising thoughts about it. And many of these thoughts don't take the present as their object, but they, they focus on the past and the future. And the substance of our anxiety in each moment and, and the link between this ever-present uncertainty of you know, what's going to happen next and, and our unhappiness, you know, our discomfort in the face of uncertainty is mediated by thought. And it's these thoughts go uninspected. You know, you just you're, you're reading the, the Washington Post and it's making you anxious. And you see the president say something insane like... Right, and then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs, so it'd be interesting to check that, so that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds, it sounds interesting to me. And you realize that in the place of real leadership, we have something like a, a lunatic in charge, and that makes you anxious. And yet, there is a dreamlike quality to this. It is as true to say that your anxiety in that moment is mediated by thinking as fully as it would be if you were asleep and dreaming about these things and having an anxious dream, right? So, so our, our normal waking life is very similar, you know, neurologically even, to what is happening to us when we're asleep and dreaming, right? There, there are a few important differences, but I mean, the main difference is you know, our mental lives while dreaming are much less constrained by inputs from our, our senses, right? So we're not, you know, our, our sensorium has kind of come offline and it gets replaced by the imagination on some level. But our highs and lows in the dream state are a pure confection of what we're imagining, what we're thinking, uh, the story we're telling ourselves. And that doesn't change much when we wake up and get out of bed and start worrying about our lives and start reacting to the people around us and what we think they meant and what the look on their on their faces. And we read the paper and we begin to vicariously suffer the highs and lows of other people who we will never meet in most circumstances. There's something to, to inspect here and realize that you know life has always been uncertain. You know, none of us know how many heartbeats we have left. If we live as long as we might, we have something like three billion of them, right? That's, that's a finite number. You know, there's a drumbeat of uncertainty here that all of us have been living with all the time. And there is a way to make our peace with that, right? There's no alternative. Immortality is not on the menu. Right. But people make, people make, depending on who they are, rational predictions about how many heartbeats they have left, what life expectancy is, or they make poor judgments about that. And those have different consequences with respect to those people and their lives and the choices they make professionally and personally, which is a good segue to talk about some of the pragmatic issues relating to COVID-19. I've, in my head, wondered... If you change the facts and you did the following thought experiment, what do you think would be different? So right now, with varying degrees of certainty, and there's some evidence to show this to be true, by and large, younger people fare better if they get infected with the coronavirus than older people. There is an understanding that there are certain underlying conditions that can cause you to have a worse reaction and greater likelihood of it being fatal for you. 
professionals are, are, are very careful to say over and over again that young people are dropping dead from strokes as well. But the data seems to suggest that there are definitely high-risk factors and high-risk groups and lower-risk groups. And so you see in various states, some people, and I think you've written about this too, there are people who resist the lockdown because they're engaging presumably in some calculation about the likelihood that they will have an infection and what the consequences and seriousness of that infection would be. Suppose you had, and I'm looking at the screen right now while I'm talking to you, it's, we're taping on Monday, May 4th, and it's about 68,000 people have died in the United States. Suppose all the same ICU rates were there, the same number of people on ventilators, the same number of deaths, but it was completely and totally random. In other words, there was no basis to understand that it would more likely infect older people and that they would have greater complications. It was utterly random across race, ethnicity, age, gender, everything else. Would there be a soul walking the streets anywhere in the United States today? Yeah, I, that would change it, and it certainly would change it. I, w- I would argue it would change it even more if it, it were preferentially killing kids, right? I mean, just imagine how your calculus would change if you know your your young children were at greatest risk for this, and there was no vaccine in sight. That, that's definitely a variable. You know, I must say I've never been I mean, again because I knew someone my age. You know, you know, early fifties, just absolutely laid low by this early on. I, I was never, and you know, this is not a good sign of statistical reasoning here. But because I had this case in my life, I, I just the idea that this was just the flu never landed with me. You know, this is I, I really think, Doctor, you want to treat this like you treat the flu, right? And you know, it's going to be it's going to be. I mean, just, you know, I, I don't have friends who go down this hard from the flu, and uh, I've been around a while, and this has always seemed like a, a very precarious situation as as we've been trying to, to understand just what this virus does to us. But yeah, no, I do think it would change things, and it's interesting to notice just how framing, you know, how you con- conceptualize various risks changes your attitude and, and the public's attitude toward things. I mean, the, the idea that this was just the flu or um, not even as bad as the flu, that did a, a tremendous amount of work, I would, I would argue, unhelpful work for our society early on and, and prevented us from responding to this as quickly as, as we should have. Something you said a second ago has just struck me, and it's very interesting. You are a person of science. You have a PhD in neuroscience. And you like to engage in data-driven arguments, but you conceded a minute ago that that one of the reasons these framings did not work with you, that it's the mere flu, was based on one case. By happenstance, you happen to have a friend who was laid low and, and spent days and days and days on a ventilator. And that's Sam Harris having that slightly undue reaction. Is that the way that all persuasion works in the practical world? That some of these people who are going out to the beach and they don't seem to care at all, it's because they don't have a close friend or they don't have a close relative that they know by name who's identifiable, who's had this bad experience with coronavirus. And if that's so, what does that say about how we you know, engage in good policy and good persuasion in the country? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because um, as someone who's you know reasonably sophisticated statistically and who thinks about these things in terms of probabilities, and I'm fairly in touch with how bad my own intuitions are with respect to um, you know many of the things that that are, are relevant here. You know, just a sense of exponential growth, right? When you if you tell someone, well, the on average, a person who has this virus will infect two people 
versus, you know, infecting four people. Well, you know, that that difference strikes most people as a doubling of the problem. But, if, you know, of course, it's nothing of the sort. You know, you get out 10 generations there, you know, it's, it's, it's a thousandfold difference. It's the difference between a thousand people getting it from this one person and a million people getting it from this one person over the course of 10 links in the chain, right? So I'm aware of how bad all of our intuitions tend to be in these areas. And this was not you know, statistical thinking, but it has an effect. And, you know, I'm aware of bracketing the effect. I'm, I'm someone who, you know, would have updated my sense of peril had there been reason to update it. But it's, you know, all, all along, it has seemed like we have been using bad analogies for this virus. And the truth is, I'm also someone who who is, has never discounted the significance of flu, right? I'm, I'm aware that, you know, 50,000 people die of flu, and, and many of them are kids. And, um, you know, you, you want to get your flu shot. But yeah, we, we need to use statistical reasoning when we're talking about social policy, because by definition, we're talking about large numbers. And there are real trade-offs. You know, it's just if, if 40,000 people are going to die every year based on what we do with our cars, there's a rational calculus to to be run with respect to how safe we how safe do we want our cars to be, how safe do we want our roads to be, how much money are we going to spend to that end? And yes, this is where the pablum that comes from people like Andrew Cuomo, who's been a, a superstar here. To me, I say cost of a human life. A human life is priceless. Period. Our reopening plan doesn't have a trade-off. But when he says, you know, you can never put a price on human life, right? You know, this one human life is too much to sacrifice. We're going to lock society down, uh, you know, even if it's just one life involved. I mean, uh, no, no one can take that at face value because it's it's absurd. We, we put a price on human life all the time and we have to because we can't expend infinite resources. Right. And, and certain things, I think, need to be said. It is, in fact, true that any particular life is priceless in the sense that the person saying it means it. But as you point out, implicit in all these policy decisions we make, how safe our cars are, how safe our planes are, how we calculate insurance rates, how we compensate families of victims who have fallen uh, ill to something, all suggests that we put a value on life, a price on life. But you know, when you're operating in the real world, in the political world, especially at a, at a time that's very fraught and panic-inducing, like during this pandemic, how do you think policymakers should talk about that? I'm not saying how should policymakers, as a, as a first matter, what choices they should make, but how should they talk about making those choices? Well, it is a hard problem. It's a, it's a problem of persuasion. It's a pragmatic problem because it's, in this case, we really do want to motivate people insofar as we understand what the policy should be and you know, take social distancing as, as really the, the only lever we've had within reach to pull initially here. We want people to to practice it. We want people to get off the beaches and get six feet from one another and understand the reasons for doing it and do it relentlessly enough so that we drive down the, the contagion rate. So it's tempting to put a lot of topspin on our statements by way of motivating people. But the, the problem there is wherever you can show something to be scientifically you know, unwarranted or dishonest, Right where it can sound like propaganda, you know, with a partisan bias, uh, and whether it's whether we're talking about COVID or climate change or anything else, that's where any shading of the truth uh, or any departure from you know scientific rigor can become toxic. 
but it is it is inevitable that that we have a stronger response to the the identifiable death than the statistical death. I mean, this is Lenin's uh, sinister and and perversely wise uh, statement that you know one death is a tragedy, a, a million is a statistic. I believe that was Lenin. I think it's attributed to Lenin and Stalin and and Mao and a few other people, but I believe it was Lenin. I see. I see a pattern. <laughs> yeah, but. It's true. And so that's why, you know, when a little girl falls down a well, you know, we'll, we'll get four days of, of wall-to-wall coverage of this emergency. And yet a, a genocide can be raging in, in Sudan or somewhere else or, you know, famine killing hundreds of thousands of people. And it, w- it won't dominate, you know, even a single hour on a single program, much less a news cycle. So it's not just the identifiability. I feel like in this case, I wonder if it's also the imagery. So when you have a flood or an earthquake, there are photographs and there are videos and you can see the destruction. And after war and during war, you see people suffering on the battlefield here. It's all happening in ICUs where there are no cameras. There are no video cameras. There's no documentation that I've seen. Maybe there's there's one instance that I can remember, but we're not seeing the overflowing emergency rooms and the people in the hallways who are just expiring, you know, many at a time. Do you think that's an that's an impact also? If there's rich video documentation of these people suffering and dying in the numbers that they are, that the national reaction would be very different. Yeah, although one could argue that the the, the framing is to some degree dishonest, right? I mean, so so someone could rightly say, well, listen, if you were standing beside the road with a camera, you know, every day of the year, showing me who died or who was mortally injured in the next car accident. And you did that 40,000 times a year and broadcast it on CNN wall to wall, I would be terrified to get into a car right now. Should I be terrified to get into a car? No. Right. So that that's the that's the counter argument. And you could, see, you could do the same thing with flu. You could do the same thing with, with heart disease and cancer and anything else that's killing you know people by the hundreds of thousands every year in the U.S. And so granted, that's there's a question of how to frame... The, the ambient level of, of risk that we're all incurring just by living. But from the very beginning, it was obvious there were several things that were different about this coronavirus. One is that it's totally novel. No one has any immunity to it. And very early on, we had every reason to believe that this was going to just burn through every population exposed to it at something like an exponential rate because it, it seemed you know very contagious more contagious than flu not not like measles but still bad enough and we didn't know what we were dealing with but the most sanguine projections very early on was that this is at least five times as lethal as the flu right it was every reason to believe that this warranted a different response and at every point it has been rational to be concerned that if we did nothing, if we just let everyone catch it who's going to catch it and cross our fingers and hope for herd immunity, that we would suffer something like a million or two or even three million deaths in the U.S. And for good reason, most people found that totally unacceptable. And the only alternative to magic was to lock things down, right? and get busy working on a vaccine and get busy working on testing capacity that could allow us to open up in, in a prudent way. And we're still stalled in that second stage of, of using the time we bought wisely because of uh, you know a, a level of ineptitude 
politically and and just just institutionally that it still is it's going to absorb several dissertations and and popular books to finally diagnose but it has been rational to respond differently to this every stage along the way because of because of the evidence so therefore to to answer your original question pre it would have been rational to make make the risk here as salient as we could and show footage from ER uh, wards being overwhelmed and to take the draw the lesson, the necessary lesson from the experience of Italy as early as possible uh, and to be motivated by it. And as a species, we show an impressive inability to be motivated in proportion to real risk. You make the cause of the problem invisible and seemingly hypothetical and probabilistic. You know, who knows what, you know, if I'm going to catch this thing and who knows what it will do to me, especially when you make the time horizon further in the future. I mean, this is why climate change is, is just such an impossible thing to message about and respond to and to take seriously, right? This is not necessarily something that's going to be all that bad for me this decade, but it'll be terrible for my grandchildren who, you know, don't, don't yet exist, right? Uh, it's just an impossible thing to get apes like ourselves to have an appropriate emotional response to and to be guided by that response. And so, yeah, creative messaging within the bounds of honesty is necessary here because we get absolutely exercised over tiny risks, really, that lead to super provocative stories. And, you know, you have people who devote their lives to conspiracy theories about things that are were never going to affect more than 20 people anyway. And yet, you know, things that can really destabilize a, a, a civilization are things we, we find it hard to, to orient to and, and much less disrupt our lives for. You mentioned President Trump a few minutes ago. And I want to read back something you said on another podcast last year. And you said this. There are very few people who, who uh, find Trump as, as o more odious than I do. I mean, if there are such people, I haven't met them. But... Much of the attack, many of the attacks on Trump are so poorly targeted mm -hmm. that he's being, you know, call, he's being called a racist for things that are not evidence of racism. Now, I have no doubt he actually is a racist, but mm -hmm. no exaggeration, half of the evidence adduced for his racism by the left is just, is just, just maliciously just poorly targeted. That's a lot of people. What are some good critiques of President Trump and some bad critiques of President Trump and does it matter? Well, I think precision really does matter here because it, on some level, we're fighting an asymmetric war and, you know, the asymmetry is, is working to the disadvantage of, of good, conscientious, scrupulous, intellectually honest, uh, and, and by and large liberal people. I don't mean just Democrats. I mean, anyone who would object to, you know, so much that's on display in, in Trump's uh, administration, but th there's an asymmetry here, and, and you can see it. I mean, in a ordinary partisan context, you can see it in the way in which you know Judge Roy Moore was running a campaign where he was, you know, credibly exposed as you know something like a pedophile. I mean, I don't know if pedophile is quite the right word, but you know, he, he as a 30 year old man was dating 14 year old girls or or something like that, and suffered very little reputational disadvantage in his world where at the same moment the the Al Franken scandal or pseudo scandal which led to his immediate defenestration from the Senate right and and that asymmetry where the people on the left have to be 
utterly scrupulous and non-hypocritical isn't mirrored on the right, or, or at least it's not mirrored at all in Trumpistan. And again, that's a context where the, the scruples of the left will be used against them every time. And we're seeing this now with, with Joe Biden and the, the allegations against him, um, which you know could be entirely true and credible, right? I mean, but we're trying to figure out how to respond to this. The problem with Trump, I mean, there's so many problems with Trump, but there's a an amazing feature here where, you know, he's so bad as a person. He's so bad. He's so unethical. He's so dishonest that he has just destroyed our ability to calibrate our outrage. He's destroyed the press's ability to respond to each one of his transgressions. And so, I mean, it's true to say, I've said this before, but it's true to say that I think if he were half as bad, he would appear worse, But which is to say that he, he lies and desecrates the office of the presidency with such velocity, you know, so relentlessly that it's impossible to keep score. It's impossible. I mean, people try to do it, but it's just you're, you're, you can't. Each new outrage is supplanted by a fresh one almost on an hourly basis, such that the last outrage can't be appropriately grokked. So how do you argue, you know, you're a person who engages in debate and a lot of people like to debate you, but when you have a president and his allies who rely on complete false analogies, you know, silly rhetoric, outright lies, what is, what is the way for people of good faith to persuade or at least engage with people like Trump's allies who are receptive to terrible analogies, outright lies, uh, improper logic, etc. I say this as one who has failed, I think, to, to successfully change anyone's mind, you know, though I've tried for now years. Uh, I mean, I see, at least I see no real-time evidence of changing people's minds who are securely in what I, what I consider now a kind of personality cult of Trump supporters. You can point out, you know, obvious hypocrisy. You can point, you know, hoping they will care. You can point out that if you, know, you enumerate any of the 10 horrific things Trump did in the last 24 hours and you ask them to imagine Obama doing any one of those things, how they would have responded, right? And if, if they're at all honest they'll recognize they would would have responded differently. It wouldn't be acceptable for a president to get the facts that wrong, you know, intentionally or not, and to never correct the record, to never take responsibility for for anything he's done wrong, to blame everyone else all the time in logically incompatible ways, and to tell lies that are so at odds with terrestrial reality that there's not even a pretense of their believability. I mean, like, so for instance, the, you know, the much ridiculed moment where he's, he suggested that we might want to ingest bleach or some disinfectant or, or, or get UV light into the body somehow. And that, you know, the, those several incredible minutes where he's, he's at the podium spitballing about this as a cure and then suggesting to Dr. Burks that you're going to look into this, right? You know, and all the memes that have been circulated around that. Well, so you know, then Trump came back and said that he was just being sarcastic, and he, you know, was masterly, you know, trolling the press. Right? He knew the press would jump at this to try to defame him, and you know, then now they've been caught red-handed. But I was asking a sarcastic and a very sarcastic question to the reporters in the room about 
disinfectant on the inside. But it does kill it, and it would kill it on the hands, and that would make things much better. That was done in the form of a sarcastic question to the reporters. Okay. Anyone who watched that video knows that that's not true. I mean, there's, I, I suspect there's actually not a person on Earth who believes the president's account of what happened there. Now, even among his supporters, even among even his among supporters, his supporters I, I would bet not one supporter who 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 saw the original video and then saw the president's account of it. I would believe there's not a man or woman alive who believes his account. And what's amazing is that for Trump supporters, for the culture he's managed to either you know create or or dissect out of of our body politic, that doesn't matter, right? What we're dealing with is the the kind of mind that revels in the WWE, right? Knowing that it's fake, but not caring, right? Like there's there's an analogy there. I mean, it's perhaps too invidious for the WWE because I mean these people are real athletes taking real risks, and you know, ironically, actually getting more injured than than real MMA fighters much of the time because, you know, this is a dangerous thing to be doing. But it's not dangerous in the way it pretends to be. It's not real combat. These guys are not real real fighters. It's, they're not great wrestlers. And anyone who went to the UFC would get annihilated, right? That's all understood or should be understood. And yet there's a pretense of real combat there, there happening. And that suspension of disbelief, to not care that it's all a put-on on some level, has migrated into the part of the brain that has to think about real-world outcomes, literally life and death questions, and and the question about you know the life and death of a global economy, right? I mean, we here we have a president who just makes things up when the stakes could not be higher, and takes no responsibility for for his messaging. For the consequences of his messaging, the fact that people, you know, go indoors or go, or go out of doors based on, you know, what he thinks the risks are around this pandemic, it's so appalling. It's such an appalling failure of leadership and our, and of our leadership on the world stage. I mean, when you when you look at what has been done to the reputation of the United States uh, globally, I mean, we are we are the laughing stock of the world and a cautionary tale because of the person we have put in power largely. Does it cause you to judge in any way the people who continue to support him? Yeah. I mean, that's, I can't help but do that. I mean, it's, so you know, I notice that I notice that it's unhelpful and I let go of it whenever I can see to do that. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it is, there's no question that if you're dealing with someone, I mean, cause there is, there's something crazy making about the, what I've encountered in Trump supporters. And I, I don't really, I don't know I, that I've seen this anywhere else in, in public life, but what I've encountered in Trump supporters is a fundamental unwillingness to acknowledge that there is anything wrong with the man. At no point in my support of, you know, the Obama presidency or of President Obama as a person would I have failed to acknowledge any specific thing that he did wrong as something that he did wrong, right? Or as a limitation on him as a, as a communicator. He was worlds away from what Trump is as, as a politician and as a person, as a communicator. But, you know, if someone who didn't like the Obama presidency pointed out that, you know, his drawing of the red line in Syria and not enforcing it, you know, was a huge 
foreign policy blunder and made made our foreign policy look ludicrous and, and made us look like a paper tiger. And it was just unwise for him to bluff when it was a bluff. And it's just, you know, of course I, I could honestly talk about that. I do not find Trump supporters who will honestly engage with any of the man's flaws or their consequences. And it's absolutely crazy making. That's why calling it a personality cult seems apropos. I mean, it, it, there is a is a kind of cultic uh, and unreasoning blindness. To some degree, it's there, there's a nihilism there where it's just the people who just view him as a wrecking ball who just who just needs to keep swinging through our institutions and and you know, just let's just bring everything down to rubble because you know the real problem is the deep state, right? I mean, like when you're dealing with those kinds of people, you know, who have zero respect for expertise and institutions and institutional knowledge and the real mechanisms by which things get done in this world and, and knowledge gets passed on from one generation to, to another. You know, the people who think universities are pointless and, you know, the State Department is pointless. And most of these people haven't thought this through, but they're celebrating the reduction in power that we're witnessing in our country and some of them are even celebrating it, even in the context of a global pandemic, which which only admits of a coordinated global response, and which therefore only admits of a, a response wherein the rest of the world cares what America is doing uh, and saying and thinking we should do, because we're not a nation of children and imbeciles who are who have you know been tipped over into some masochistic free for all. We're, we're all just going to go out and restart the economy uh, without any ability to, uh, you know, use any of this flattening of the curve wisely. You know, so we've been completely sidelined and the rest of the world is just kind of going on without us, it seems to me. And in large measure, Trump and, and the kinds of people he's drawn into his orbit are responsible. It's very hard to not be judgmental. But again, I mean, ju- being judgmental of stark irrationality and you know double standards that should be unsustainable and truly unwise commitments to to bad policies that again that's a signal it's like it's like anger it's like fear it's like it doesn't feel good and it's not you don't want that emotion to rule you moment to moment but it, it's worth paying attention to you know i principally did not invite you on to talk about some of the controversies that you've been involved in but i do want to ask you something about it and that is Obviously, you have critics on the right because of some of the stances you've taken about religion. You're a noted atheist, and you've said things about Donald Trump, like you've just recited here. You have pretty substantial critics on the left because of some of the things you've written about about race. And I guess I have two questions for you. What do these labels, conservative and liberal, mean, if they mean anything, and what do they mean to you? And second, do you ever have a worry or a concern that some of the very complex and nuanced points you make and arguments that you write out can be used and distorted, probably in your mind you think that they are being distorted, by people who want to weaponize them and who are of less good faith than you. Do you think about how things can be taken out of context or slightly changed or misunderstood? Or do you just do what you think in your discretion makes sense to say and write and think and do? Yeah, well, well, more and more it's the latter. But yeah, I mean, there is no way to speak in a way that is so guarded and so hair-splitting such that you could never be quoted out of context to your apparent uh, 
you know, reputational demise. I mean, it's just, it's, there's just no way to do it. So it, it's a losing game. I try to be, you know, you know, when I look back on the kinds of things I've said and written, you know, earlier in my career, I do notice moments where I made things harder for me than was, you know, really necessary. Were you um, trying to be, were you trying to be provocative in, in your earlier days? Provocative, no, but, but not boring. You know, I mean, it's just, there's, there's, I was not beyond being motivated by the, the pleasure of, of uh, a well-turned phrase or, you know, giving something a little more, you know, putting a little more English on the ball because it has a rhetorical effect, not letting it grade into anything that I couldn't back up, you know, factually, but, you know, just speaking or writing more colorfully than was necessary. And therefore, you know, I cre- created more trouble for myself than perhaps I, I might have. But the truth is this this whole line of thought and, you know, accommodation to, you know, what I would generally refer to as, as political correctness is a losing game because you can always be quoted out of context in a way that seems to reveal you as a moral monster, right? I mean, the, the example I, I use here, and, and this is, so this is an example that will seem somewhat hyperbolic, but it actually isn't. I mean, the, given the, the character of the people who tend to quote me out of context and tend to attack me uh, for my for you know views I don't actually hold, this is the kind of thing that has happened to me again and again. If I were to say, you know, in the context of any discussion about you know race and biology and you know uh, you know those that that part of the outside the Overton window that, that gets everyone into trouble, if I were to say that you know listen. Black people are apes. White people are apes. We're all just apes. Racism is ludicrous, right? If that were the statement, I am now continually followed by people who will take the first sentence out of context and memify it and even talk about it in the context of a a Guardian op-ed or um, you know, an article in Salon or, you know, Alternet. I mean, these are all journals that have published more or less just continuous disinformation about me, but seeded with truths, right? A, a real quote. So they would just, they would say, you know, Sam Harris is on the record saying that he thinks black people are apes, right? Well, not, not only I, those people, if you were the Democratic nominee for president, Donald Trump would run an ad against you doing exactly that. They've done that with, with Joe Biden. But that's an easy example, right? Isn't that? But 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 that's but it gets across the point that that in terms of the kinds of things I have said about, I mean, you know, I mean, you you have it in your head that I have said some controversial things about race, and that the the, the people on the left are perhaps justifiably critical of my positions. The truth is, it's I have said in my view nothing controversial about race, and that the most controversial thing I did is I, I had Charles Murray on my podcast and. And had a sympathetic conversation with him because I think he's been, you know, unfairly maligned as a as a you know, racist or white supremacist for for his book that you know I had never read because I thought it m- must be r- racist nonsense. And I, I only became interested in his case when he was you know literally run off the stage at Middlebury College a couple of years ago, you know, twenty five years after he wrote his infamous book, The Bell Curve. And so I was responding to what you know I saw as a a crisis in in academia largely, but also just in in wider culture. I mean, it spread to Silicon Valley. It spread to companies like Google and and everywhere where there was an intolerance for actual dispassionate discussions about data and 
the kinds of things we were finding out about you know ourselves and about the world in scientific laboratories. These are by definition nonpartisan contexts, or should be. And you know, I was just seeing the evidence everywhere that you couldn't talk about differences between men and women, or questions of gender or sexuality, or or there was now so many no go areas in in science. Uh, this 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 thing was becoming increasingly stifling, and then you know, and and Charles Murray suddenly struck me as a canary in the coal mine. But the reality is, is that there is nothing of real political interest here. I mean, we we know what the we want the political punchline to be. Uh, we know what it has to be. We know that people need to be valued as individuals. You know, as you as you said earlier on, you know, more or less like they're priceless, right? Or, and 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 certainly like they are political equals to everyone else. Everyone is is politically as important as everyone else. We want a free society where everyone can make the most of their talents and their passions and their opportunities, and we want to spread those opportunities to everyone and cancel as much as possible, the very deep inequalities of good and bad luck, right? I mean, and, and, so, and so this just, you look around in society, I mean, the difference between good and bad luck on every level is so enormous. I mean, the difference between being born into a, a happy and loving and intact family and being born, you know, into a circumstance where, you know, both your parents are killed in a car accident on your second birthday, right? I mean, that variable alone is so enormous. You know, so it's like, how do we correct for that the bad luck of that sort? To think of, you know, everything else. You throw everything else you want into this picture. Differences in, in health and education and everything compounds here. And clearly the... the the mark of an enlightened and truly wealthy society, you know, a society that has a lot of moral wealth, will be in how we we raise the floor for the least fortunate among us, right? So obviously, we want something like universal health care, right? Obviously, we want, as we grow wealthier as a society, we want a, a tide that lifts all boats, and we don't want a Gini coefficient in our society that makes us look like, you know, Brazil on its worst day and where, you know, the richest among us feel like they need to wring their compounds in razor wire to keep out the rabble, right? Like like that, the end game for a, a truly prosperous America has to recognize that a certain level of wealth inequality is morally and politically unsustainable. But we know these. We know the these answers already, right? Like, there's nothing that's going to come from science that spells out differences between men and women, say, or between people born in Norway and people born in Fiji, right? And of course, those differences will be there to be found on some level. There's no there's no punchline there biologically or psychologically that's going to suggest that we don't want a a society where political equality. And freedom is safeguarded. But if that is so, people will say, well, then why spend so much time on it? And why give grist to less good faith actors who want to use it for that purpose? Yeah. And that was that was absolutely uh, one of my questions to Charles Murray in that podcast. And it's the, it's the question that I have never gotten a good answer 
for, uh, which is why pay attention to any of this stuff? What's the point? What's the point of of becoming interested in racial differences? Right. Take right, the, especially when you know what it will cause, what it will beget, and especially when you know that there have been prior attempts to try to graft science on this idea of racial difference and differences in intelligence that were quackery and caused, you know, a lot of justification for very terrible policies and a lot of discrimination. I mean, there is there is a legacy in the history of bad thinking, bad reasoning, and bad outcomes based on just this kind of inquiry, right? Yeah, yeah, and and you know, I've I've always been aware of that, and I've I've that's been clear, and I've never again, I, I've never been interested. I mean, let's take this the center of uh, the the center of this this unhappy bullseye um, differences, IQ differences across race has been something that has never interested me, and the truth is, you know, IQ has never interested me. Uh, and race has never interested me. So what what I've become interested in, and and you know the kinds of conversations I've been dragged into, despite my my better judgment, is in the the way in which people's fear over the the misuse of of certain facts, uh, you know, actual facts, or certain areas of inquiry, has led to a, a stifling of honest conversation and a an attempt to a, a assassinate people's character and and reputations. And so, and what the, what this has created is an environment in which you could literally stumble upon data where you were not you were not looking for anything that could conceivably be politically charged, but you could stumble upon true data coming out of you know behavioral genomics or evolutionary psychology or any anything in this area where you know science is intersecting with with human behavior that could literally you know ruin your life were you to speak honestly about it and for no good reason. I mean, the example that came to mind in this context, and this is happily, this example was working in my favor, but it, it, it could have gone the other way. You know, we found out a few years ago, I think it was 2014, that most of the people on earth are walking around with something like 2.4, 2.7% Neanderthal DNA in them, right? So, I think my 23andMe data showed that I was, you know, 2.7% Neanderthal. Everyone found this just hilarious, right? This is this is just biological comedy, right, to find this out. And then it was it was also found out that the only people on earth who don't have Neanderthal DNA by and large are people who can trace their line of descent directly to Africa without, you know, any intervening adventures in Europe or elsewhere. And so, which is to say, you know, black people from Africa don't have Neanderthal DNA, right? And now at the time when this came out, I tweeted, attention all racists, you were right. Whites are special. We're part Neanderthal. Blacks are just human, right? Something like that. And that was just me trolling the the racists of the world and, uh, you know, also just announcing this kind of amusing fact about Neanderthal DNA. But my encounters with the the far left and the experience I had talking to Charles Murray made me realize that had that gone the other way, or just imagine the scientist who found that his analysis of the human genome and found that uh, and the Neanderthal genome and found that you know the only people on Earth who are part Neanderthal are black people from Africa, right? Everyone else is a hundred percent Homo sapiens, right? Imagine how that would have detonated 
in, in an American, especially in, in the American political context, right? Imagine the death threats that person would have got. It would have detonated in two ways, though, right? It would have detonated in the way that you're discussing, perhaps, people upset at that revelation. But part of the reason it would have detonated there, is it not true, is because the other parallel detonation would have been on the part of organized and unorganized racist groups who would have said, aha, this explains a lot, and used it to further malign and degrade and dehumanize black people, no? Well, yeah, of, of course. But we have to be able to speak honestly about what we discover about the human genome or any other corner of the universe through science. Now, there, I would, I would certainly admit that there are certain kinds of knowledge that's it's not worth seeking, right? And it's not worth emphasizing, and it's not worth publicizing. You know, you know how to weaponize smallpox. Well, there's a right answer to that, and you know somebody knows that answer. And this is not something that I think should be you know, spread on the internet, right? It probably already is, but. There, there are classes of facts that are, I would argue, not worth seeking out and you know worth keeping secret if that's conceivable. But for the most part, we have to have a, a an honest and non-paranoid discussion about everything we discover about, in this case, human biology, right? It's just- I don't disagree with that. I, the, the reason I made the point that I made is, I guess, to, to see if you get and understand- that there's a reason for that fear. And there's a reason for, I think, what you've described in some places as moral panic, because there's a history and legacy of that information being used in unspeakably horrible ways. And I'm not saying it's right. And I'm saying that you have a point when you say that incontrovertible scientific facts exist and should be accepted and should be able to be revealed without retaliation. But I, do you also understand why there are large numbers of people who do have a fear about that because there's a track record. Oh, oh of course, of course. But again, the, the the remedy here, as it usually is, is not to stop the conversation, but to just continue it, right? And so th here, if you continue the conversation, you arrive at some other facts that are, in my view, fully exculpatory, which is the variance between groups is uh, for you know any of these characteristics we could conceivably care about, is never going to be greater than the, the variance within groups, which is to say that you know very little about an individual by being told he's Japanese or Jewish or black or male or female. I mean, these are just not, you don't know what you really care about if, it's your, if it comes time to hire somebody, right, for a job, which is, you know, usually the, the most poignant case here that everyone's thinking about. So if I'm if I'm looking for a a statistician, right, and you tell me that uh, there are several candidates and here are these superficial features about them, right, and you know one came from from Finland and one has uh, you know parents who were uh, Inuit, I, I basically know nothing about this person's aptitude for statistics, right? Anyone can be an outlier in any distribution we're going to be interrogating. And so it's never the right choice as an employer to think, okay, I'm going to screen on the basis of some superficial characteristic here. And so that, I mean, that's just, you know, for me, that's the the political punchline. This is just not, it's, it's not sane 
to even dignify it as information at the at the population level. And yet the the reality is, here's just the background intellectual and moral fact that we have to get our minds around. And this is what this is what caused me to touch this third rail in the first place. The reality is, is that for any quality of human being we could conceivably care about, that quality will differ at the population level among any two groups we can care about. The, the, the mean, if we, if we can measure this quality, the population mean is extraordinarily unlikely to be the same for any two groups we could, we could pick out. And they could even be groups that are not especially well-defined. They could just be, you know, self-identified groups. I mean, they, I mean this, is, this is a point that's been often made and it's important to make. The place of greatest genetic variance on Earth is in Africa, right? So it's like to, to talk about black people as a group, as a race, makes very little sense with respect to you know you know anything other than than skin color as compared to you know other groups right i mean and even there it doesn't make a lot of sense because you know you have people who are in south india who are just as dark as people in sub-saharan africa um, it's just there's much more to the story right but even if you take a badly defined group you just have you just take people who think they're black or think they're jewish or think they're uh, you know, have some amount of of Native American in them. They can self-identify any way they want. If you compare those groups for any variable you care about, you will discover group level differences, right? I see absolutely nothing to worry about, really, politically, on that basis. And yet the people who think this is the intellectual and moral equivalent of plutonium, believe they're responding to a real emergency there and they have to shut conversation down even when the conversation goes there by accident right even the, even if somebody thinks they're just studying neanderthals who no longer exist and then finds that a certain group has a disproportionate amount of their dna all of a sudden that person's life is ruined we've installed tripwires in our discourse which the the, the mere touching of which it winds up destroying people's reputations for for no reason, and and so that that's the thing that's untenable for me. And and uh, so for better or worse, I've just decided to speak as honestly I, as I can about anything that I find interesting and consequential. And you know, I, I've had to take some significant steps to to create a platform where you know I can't actually be canceled. By people, and and I've I've managed to do that, right. and you self-publish. Um, I've I've done I've done some of the same. Yeah, Sam, I have forty-nine more questions for you. Okay, <laughs> we haven't been able to get to them. Among them, we're going to be very easy ones, like do we have free will, and can we be sure the universe exists? But we will have to save that for another time. It's been a pleasure. I hope we meet in person one of these days, Preet. It'll probably be a little bit. Yeah, no doubt. The meditation app is called Waking Up. Sam Harris, thanks again for taking the time to be with us. Yeah, take care, Preet. The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To hear the Stay Tuned bonus material with Sam Harris and get the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast and other content, head to cafe.com slash insider. Right now, you can try a Cafe Insider membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider.
So folks, I want to end the show this week by talking about something that I have brought up from time to time. And if you listen to the show with any regularity, you know how inspired I am by young people in this country and around the world and how crisis after crisis and when hard times befall us, sometimes it's the young folks who lead the way and give a shining example of how the rest of us should behave. And the coronavirus pandemic is no exception to that. In fact, as nations all over the world battle COVID-19, they're getting some help from federal governments, some less, but young people everywhere are stepping up to organize, create, donate, and help those who need it most. And they're doing all sorts of things, dealing with national shortages of protective gear or PPE in hospitals and nursing homes, to an increase in homeless populations. There is a pretty dark cloud hanging over all of us, and a long road back to something we once knew as normalcy. And even lacking a lot of experience, life experience, training, and postgraduate education, some young people are using what they have to make that road a little easier. Here's one example. There's a 12-year-old named Quinn from Canada who figured out how to 3D print ear guards. Those are small plastic devices meant to alleviate the pressure put on the ears of healthcare workers by the elastic strings of their face masks. You may not realize it, but healthcare professionals were in near constant pain from the strain of the elastic. That doesn't help them do their job. And after 12-year-old Quinn's mother sent a tweet that went viral, the 3D printing design he used to start his project was downloaded over 48,000 times by individuals and manufacturers alike. And Quinn continues to print and donate more every day. That's not the only 3D story in connection with trying to alleviate the pandemic either. There's New York City college freshman and Girls Who Code alumna, Karina Popovich. She's founded Makers for COVID-19, an international group focused on 3D printing as much PPE as possible, as fast as possible. She started 3D printing in high school and later focused on training other girls on the printing machine. After she was evacuated from Cornell University, she started printing PPE at home, which quickly turned into founding Makers for COVID-19. She's personally made 500 FDA and CDC-approved regulation face shields, which she donates around the city of New York to medical centers. Her group currently has a total of 240 makers internationally who have created 22,000 units of regulation PPE every week. That includes shields, ventilator valves, and N95-type masks. And that's not all. There's an Afghani all-girls robotics team that's building a prototype for a ventilator made from old car parts, modeled after a blueprint from MIT. And then there's 17-year-old Avi Schiffman. While President Trump falsely assured the American public that COVID-19 would not be an issue here, Avi begged to differ. In December, this Washington state local launched a homemade website to track the movement of the virus. That website is ncov2019.live. And since its founding, it's gotten over 100 million views. A self-taught coder, Avi created the site to pull information from all over the web to create live charts, images, and numbers that track the wreckage of the virus all over the world. Avi's site is now a reputable and trusted watchdog of the virus. Why? Primarily because he took the threat of disease seriously long before the President of the United States did. There are lots of other examples of young people stepping up and stepping forward. They inspire me still. They should inspire you too. I thank them for their service and for their care about the world. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Sam Harris. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tattashore. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Calvin Lord, Noah Azulai, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.